Good morning, church family. How are you guys? It's feeling very bright out there, and I saw that in the middle of this week, we're supposed to get 33 degrees above zero. Take it. I'll take it. We're moving the right direction. If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, we're going to be picking up at verse 36 this morning. And if you are one who has lived in Alaska for any amount of time now, you've learned by now that we have lots of phrases and expressions by which we refer to ourselves that are somewhat comical, right? Probably the most well-known is the phrase sourdough. I don't know what the threshold is, by the way, when one becomes a sourdough or not, but it's, you know, you got to have some time here. Maybe shoot something bigger than yourself, make it through a few winners, Or there's the comical description of a sourdough, which says uh, where one is sour on Alaska and has no dough to get out, right? You've heard that? Or for you single gals out there, you know this one in reference to the male-to-female ratio uh, about Alaska, where the odds are good, but the goods are odd. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Or how about, it's not that Alaska is so great... It's just that it makes you unfit to live anywhere else, right? I feel that one. When I travel outside, I think, I couldn't live here. They wouldn't let me, you know? One of my favorite all-time Alaskan expressions, though, is the word chichaco. Do you know this one? How many of you know the word chichaco? Most people should. I was surprised how many people didn't know it, though, which may indicate you are one. So let let me tell you about this. Chichaco, it's, not, it's, it's a little bit pejorative. It's not like a heavy slam, but it's not a compliment. If someone calls you a chichaco, it's, it's not necessarily a compliment. Uh, this is someone who is new to Alaska, and uh, they haven't quite figured it all out yet, and you kind of show. We can see you. Uh, it actually has its roots in the mining industry. I didn't know that. I learned that this week. Um, but we might think about it this way. On a boat, you're a greenhorn. In sports, you're a rookie. At the job site, you're an apprentice. In an office, you're an intern. Uh, As a student, it's the freshman. In education, you're the student teacher. In Alaska, you're a chichaco. You're a newbie. You don't have it figured out yet, and you stand out. How can you spot a chichaco in Alaska? This is kind of debatable, and I'll just run you through my grid. First of all, They're Carhartts, not at all broken in yet. Very rough. You could use them as an emery board to file your nails. You know, they are that rough and that crispy. Or how about the orange electrical cord used to plug in their car? That's only going to, that's a real new one. That's only going to last a couple weeks. This is one for me and I think debatable. How about you see somebody with a stroller? I go, hmm, Chichaco. That's not going to work. You try the parking lot at Fred Meyer, you're going to see. Maybe a clear one. Pronunciations of things, or rather mispronunciations. You hear somebody say snowmobile, Chichaco. Or how about uh, they're going to see the Tanana River, or go to Tanana, or see the Ninana River, right? Or they're going to stop at talk for a bite to eat, Okay. Last one here, somebody, really anybody wearing heels or white pants, (laughs) chichaco. 
or really trying to hold on to a sense of fashion whatsoever. <laughs> Chichaco is someone who doesn't quite know what they're doing in Alaska yet, and we can see you. And our passage today, we see a few Chichacos in Christian leadership, in ministry, some newbies. Uh, we have these two different individuals, John Mark and young Timothy. And they're brought on as protégés to the Apostle Paul, and they kind of stand out a little bit. We get to see how they bear up as young Christian leaders. And then along the way, I think we just learned some really good lessons about discipleship and about leadership development. And overall, this, this passage is just a good reminder to us that our youth in the church, they are the church of today, but they're the ones who will be leading the church tomorrow. And that's a sobering reminder and and an encouragement that we've got to be investing in the church of today and its its future leaders. And so today we look at these two different young Christian leaders, John, Mark, and Timothy, both pretty raw and new in their spiritual journey. Both will feature prominently uh, in Scripture. Mark will go on to pen one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And the other one, Timothy, will become a leader, in fact, the bishop of the church of Ephesus, and will receive two pastoral letters from the Apostle Paul, kind of coaching him up on how to be a good leader there. But both of them will have to go through their own spiritual journey of Christian discipleship, kind of some on-the-job training here. So uh, the big point that we want to take away, right on your, your notes in the center of your bullets in there, if you want to take that out as a helpful guide, the big point I want you to hear this morning is this that churches need to intentionally develop next generation leaders through instruction, through encouraging relationships, and very often through second chances. Uh, Verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." So the first thing I want to recognize here is that disciple-making or discipleship is an ongoing process. Uh, This is not something, discipleship does not have a finish line. Discipleship doesn't have a graduation date where we get to sort of move the spiritual tassel from one side to the other and say, I'm complete, I've arrived. It's a process with a beginning, but it has no end. Becoming disciples, students, and apprentices of Jesus who increasingly reflect his character and nature is the divine agenda for the rest of our life, and we'll be working on it the rest of our life. It's a process. We see that it was even a process in the life of the Apostle Paul, as one who had grown up under the law, under steep pharisaical instruction under Gamaliel, and then he becomes a Christian, his conversion on the road to Damascus, then God sends a couple of men along to encourage him in the early stages of his Christian journey. The first, if you'll remember, we went over this, was Aeneas. This was a man from the town of Damascus, the very place Paul was headed, breathing out murderous threats against the church. Uh, Ananias was a potential 
uh, target for the Apostle Paul. But upon his conversion, Paul directed Ananias to actually come down and to encourage Paul in the faith. And so he comes down and actually facilitates his baptism in the Spirit and water baptism as well. And then the next man that God would bring into young Paul's life uh, was Barnabas to come along and encourage him and to uh, bring him along in the faith and actually to walk him into the disciples in Jerusalem and sort of vouch for him and say, he's legit. So even, even Paul's uh, entrance into the faith and his beginning steps in the journey of Christianity were a process, and it's something that he replicates in his own mission strategy as he goes and takes the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, we saw this a couple weeks ago uh, where Paul routinely says, let's go back. Let's go back to these churches. Let's go back to these people where we preach the gospel, where they became Christians, and let's encourage them on and strengthen them in their faith. I described that first missionary journey as sort of an out and back, like the hikes or bike rides that we might do. The out portion of that first missionary journey was gospel proclamation. And then we kind of see the back part, again, encouragement, disciple-making, bringing them along. And so we see the heart of Paul. He's not just a stump preacher. He's not simply trying to get people to pray the sinner's prayer. He wants to see converts move on to the believer's life, to see Christ infiltrate every aspect of one's life. And so we see how he wants Christians to become mature disciples to Jesus. And I think this is a reminder sort of of, the, of not just the Great Commission, but I'll say two commissions that we have in the New Testament. The Great Commission you know very well, this is at the heartbeat of our church, especially uh, in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. So this is the great commission, but we need to be careful that we don't get fixed on this as though it were the only one. There's one that comes along with it, and we have it here in the beginning of Acts, where they ask Jesus, is it now time for you to establish your kingdom? And he says this, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. My point is this, these two commissions are really one commission and ought to be integrated. We are to be Christ's witnesses first, and we are to make disciples of those who come to a saving knowledge of him. We cannot simply do one or the other. We need to be doing both, and they really ought to be integrated. Or in another way of saying it, disciple-making happens in the wake of evangelism. As we act as his witnesses, we make disciples of those who come along and follow Jesus. There's actually an interesting sort of story about this um, in church history between George Whitfield and John Wesley. Um, back in the 1700s, both these preachers set out really with the same heart and with the same methodology. They wanted to share the gospel. They would preach to anybody they could. And their common method was to gather a crowd sort of in an open field as stump preachers. They both started this way. And George Whitfield especially excelled at this. He was a natural and was incredibly effective. 
And he really became the voice and the face of, of what's called the Great Awakening. In fact, you could, I think it could be argued that other than the Apostle Paul, there has been no more effective and prolific evangelist in the history of the world other than John Whitfield. Billy Graham would, uh, might raise his hand in protest, but uh, these are probably the two most effective evangelists. But John Wesley, who started the same way, kind of saw that uh, while it was kind of effective, uh, public preaching was effective for drawing a crowd, uh, introducing the gospel, just introducing the gospel, lacked something. It lacked follow-up. And so he put together these small bands or class meetings where people could come together and uh, interact, discuss the scriptures, ask questions, confess sin, encourage one another, pray for each other. In other words, these became life-on-life discipleship communities. And historians tell us that actually Whitfield, the better preacher of the two, lamented towards the end of his life that his methodology was not more full. Because while he was the more effective preacher, there was sort of a, a drop-off in what had happened to many of the converts. Whereas Wesley, giving himself to disciple-making, saw disciples who made disciples who made disciples. Now, the point I want to say is this. I don't think either one is right or wrong. The point I want to make is we need both. We need Whitfields and Wesleys. And we need them to be integrated together. We need those who are excellent witnesses for Christ, gifted with evangelism, and we need disciple makers coming along right behind him and gleaning the fruit that is, that is made there. Discipleship happening in the wake of evangelism. The next thing we see in our passage here is that we, we kind of see some ministry partnerships here. We see that sometimes they may dissolve, they may divide, or they may change. And while nobody going into a ministry partnership or a ministry initiative hopes for this, I'm going to say it's inevitable. It's going to happen at some point in time. Ministry partnerships simply don't exist for eternity. Um, and the interesting thing here for me especially, uh, this sort of this occurrence, this dispute between Paul and Barnabas, this splitting up, is we're not told in the text that this person was right and this person was wrong. And personally, I love that. I think it's very easy for Christians to kind of get into sort of binary thinking. It's either good or bad, right? True or false, this or that. And there's a lot of things that kind of exist in in the middle realm here. And this is one of those. I am so glad that there's no moral determination made on this splitting up. Uh, And I think we learned from that that not all ministry partnerships are meant to be or meant to be forever. And that's okay. We can be yoked together for a particular season. And then it's okay to pair off and say a new season, new partnership. Um, And I think when we decide no on an opportunity or, or again, split up like that, it doesn't have to be a judgment on the legitimacy of one's ministry or character or anything like that. It's just an assessment that this isn't the right time for this particular fitting. So we see this with Paul and Barnabas, right? Such a sharp disagreement uh, really over the track record of John Mark that they split company. We see it with Whitfield and Wesley, They had a sharp disagreement over methodology 
And actually over doctrine too, quite a large dispute on doctrine. That's another sermon for another day. Even, even a pairing like Lot and Abraham split up just pragmatically because there's too many people in a small space. So in other words, it's okay if ministry partnerships don't last forever and we don't need to moralize it when it comes to an end. We don't need to look for a victor and a villain. Okay? In fact, sometimes graciously dissolving a partnership or saying that it's run its course is really a way of trusting God and saying, we trust you to build your church. We trust that you're at work and we don't have all of this figured out. So in this particular case, something kind of wonderful happens. Two ministry teams come forth and it shows itself to be pretty good. So they had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul chooses this guy by the name of Silas, and I'm not getting into his biography here this morning. And Barnabas chooses John Mark. And you get the sense that these, these new formations are just going to be much more complementary to the individual natures on the team. Uh, if we look at the Apostle Paul, I think it's fair to say, Paul seems to be a pretty intense figure, right? Just looking at some of his writings, some of the things that he said, think about his writing to the, the uh, church in Galatia. He's a little salty. He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? That's not a Hallmark card, you know. He's wagging the finger. Paul's a little salty. Barnabas, on the other hand, can you remember his nickname? Son of encouragement. That's his nature. And so Barnabas kind of seems to be one of those guys with a real pastoral heart. He seems to be optimistic about people, willing to take a risk even kind of willing to be burned by somebody, just in optimistic hopes that they might succeed in ministry. And in fact, it was Barnabas who was one of the first ones to come alongside the Apostle Paul and to commend him to the fellowship and say, no, he's legit, he's a real believer. So that's kind of his, his nature here. Um, it's interesting to me too that that Barnabas has sort of this, this same temperament in gifting to give people the benefit of the doubt and give them a second chance. Whereas in contrast to Paul, he kind of wants to see a track record first. Just two different styles. We could ask the question, which one is right? Neither. Both of them have to live as disciples in their own skin with their temperaments and their gifting as God has given it to them. Um, and I, I, I think there's a caution here for us in this. It's very easy for us to judge one another by our own giftings and temperaments. It's easy for me to say something like, well, I love teaching, and if this person does it, how serious a disciple could they be? Or you might be an encourager type, or let's say a compassion type, and you might say, man, why doesn't Eric ever show any compassion towards anything? We can easily judge one another by our natural gifting that the Holy Spirit has given to us. The third thing we see here is this. Promising leaders shouldn't be evaluated by perfect performance, but rather the inclination of their character and their heart for others. So we'll pick up in chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, 
where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that, it, that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So again here we see kind of Paul's nature on display. He's one who recognizes Timothy has a good reputation in the community. Paul wants the credentials up front. Here we go. We've got young Timothy. Um, But what's interesting to consider here, and I hope this troubled you as we read it if you've been with us, is Paul's decision to circumcise Timothy? Did you catch that? And you think, wait a minute. Wasn't it just like two paragraphs ago when the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, right, fists in the air, outraged at the Pharisees who were demanding as a condition for salvation that one be circumcised as a sign that they were going to observe the law? They were outraged over it. And now here's this young leader, right, whose dad is a Greek, therefore he would not have grown up circumcised. And Paul says, oh no, before we go, this is going to happen. Doesn't this seem a little hypocritical? I'm sure Timothy is saying that, you know. Hey, Paul, wait wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There was a whole council that was formed. There was a decision that was reached. We wrote up a white paper. We delivered it all over the place. Can somebody bring me a copy, please, before this happens? I'm sure Timothy was saying something like this. Um, What we find here is that Paul is not putting this out here as a condition for salvation. Rather, I think it's a demonstration of the lengths that the Apostle Paul is willing to go through to remove any obstacle or barrier for gospel proclamation. So strong is his heart that unbelieving Jews and Gentiles would hear the gospel from his team that he wants to remove every obstacle. Sometimes we go the extra mile for the conscience of another. And we can hear his heart explicitly in 1 Corinthians 9 where he says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its benefits. There's Paul's heart, his ministry heart, and why he has Timothy go through this. So let me kind of wrap this up here. we got a full morning of some, some pretty cool things to do here in just a moment. But let me wrap this up with saying, it's also fascinating about the Apostle Paul that as he gets later on in his ministry and in his life, at the tail end of his ministry, he has a change of heart about John Mark. And more than a decade later, later in his second letter to Timothy, 
At the time, Timothy is a pastor of the church of Ephesus. He writes to his young protege, Timothy, uh, saying, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone on to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone out to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark, John Mark, and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. As time had gone on, presumably by the ministry of Barnabas and his encouragement in uh, Mark's life, he grew to be a faithful disciple, one that Paul trusted and wanted for his assistance. And so I think there's two quick takeaways from this. Number one, be careful about moralizing what might be bad ministry partnerships. If it's time to bring them to a close, that's fine. We don't need to moralize it. And then secondly, don't write somebody off. Don't write somebody off. I was thinking of that line from Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice. What is it? Mr. Darcy says, my good opinion once lost is lost forever. Don't be a Mr. Darcy. (laughs) Recognize that God is at work in people's lives. He matures them. He changes them. And your own heart might be the one that he's changing. Be willing to give people second chances. So the bullet this morning is this. Churches intentionally develop next generation leaders through instruction, through encouraging relationships, and very likely through second chances. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this uh, just honest look at um, ministry in the first century. As the gospel was taking hold in people's lives and teams were being formed and missions were being engaged in, um, thank you that it wasn't always neat and clean so that we can see that that's the way it will be. Thank you for... uh, the kinds of examples that we see in both Timothy and John Mark, who started out raw, each of them grew to be mature and trustworthy uh, teammates for the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Lord, I pray that we uh, would be disciples who uh, are continually in the process of being made into the likeness of Christ, that we would not think that we have arrived or graduated or matured and have nothing left to learn. Keep us learning Keep us drawing close to you. Keep us understanding what you've called us to so that we might be effective witnesses for the gospel and those who make disciples of Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name, amen.